This reading comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 18, and can be found on page 133. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belongs to the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affections on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts. Therefore, do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. The second reading is uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, and it's on page 823 of the Pew Bibles. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that not mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawmaker. Sorry, I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Anne. And I'm going to say thanks to Will Simon. He's going to come and hand something around to you. Uh, he's going to give you a nail. Everyone's going to receive a nail. Uh, and as it comes around, you, you want Galatians 2 in front of you, by the way. And let me welcome those of you who are new or visiting. Um, the nail is not uh, in aid of um, you know, starting the building project here at church early. Uh, it's not because I'm worried that the pencils might have you know, run out of lead and you're going to be carving it into your skin or anything nearly as drastic as that. Um, but hang on to the nail. I'm not going to explain why you have it now, but it will become clear over time. Uh, instead, as, um, as Andrew's already pointed out, uh, we're looking at freedom. Uh, we're looking at the book of Galatians and the joys and delights of freedom in Christ. Uh, if you missed the, um, the illustration that Andrew reminded us of, uh, in many ways, freedom is like being that goldfish in the bowl that we can see on the screen. Uh, that the goldfish doing what it is designed to do in the bowl, swimming around the water, is genuinely free. The bowl is not limiting its freedom. The, goal, the bowl is guarding its freedom. Take the fish out of the bowl and it dies. It's not actually genuinely free. Uh, so too, the book of Galatians is concerned with what real freedom is and real freedom is staying in Jesus. He guards our freedom. Should we move out of him, uh, it may look like more freedom, but rather it's death that's on our doorstep. Uh, and so we look at the book of Galatians as a group of people whose freedom was under threat uh, but we look at it with a great confidence uh, that we can enjoy real freedom. Uh, I'm going to pray for us um, that we might hear clearly from God this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. Uh, we thank you most of all that uh, you made us to be free. And Father, may this morning we uh, hold on all the more tightly to that freedom uh, and see the dangers that are around us to lose freedom and those who want to enslave us. Uh, Father, may uh, we delight in your word and delight in what your son has done and live differently because we know him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've seen the film Saving Private Ryan, uh, the final moments have uh, an elderly war veteran in a graveyard. Uh, he's there surrounded by his family. Uh, he's, he's the Private Ryan of the film's title. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling the end for you, but you know it's an old movie, isn't it? Uh, I'm allowed to spoil them. 
Um, he's there looking at, the, at one particular grave and he's clearly shaken and he turns and he asks his wife for some reassurance. Um, he asks her the question, you know, or asks of her, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. So the whole of the film recalls how a band of soldiers had given their lives to save his. And as he stands by this graveside of this one particular guy, Captain Miller, he is haunted by the dying words um, of one of his saviours. Earn this. As he cradled this guy who was dying from his arms, he's saying, earn this. When I watched the film, I found myself thinking, what an enormous weight to have to bear. You know, to spend all your days wondering if you've been good enough to earn, you know, the sacrifice of, and, and of others and, and justify your existence. It's a huge burden to actually live a good enough life, isn't it? It's hard enough doing it for yourself, let alone for, for others. The, the burden of trying to live up to those kind of expectations. And yet in many ways, I think that's the pattern of our lives. You know, we're, we're, we're often trying to be good enough. We live in what some have called a meritocracy. That is, um, authority and power and advancements and reputation, they they all go in our society to the people who are able and talented, the people who earn it. And you kind of go, in lots of ways, that's that's great, that's better than rewarding incompetent people, isn't it? Uh, But it brings a burden. Uh, An Irish commentator, David McWilliams, put the pressure of modern life in a meritocracy, or his word, expectocracy, this way. In the past, your social status was rigid. You didn't feel uh, the same anxiety about underachieving. If your dad wasn't a lawyer, you never would be, so there was nothing to worry about. But today, if your child doesn't achieve, there's something wrong with her as an individual. She can't blame the system. She's at fault. The flip side of expectocracy is not disappointment, but humiliation, loss of face, banishment into the outer darkness of averageness. So even before you've had your first school report come in, uh, there's been pressure on you to, to live a good life, to earn what you get, to, to justify what you've received. And it doesn't get any easier as you're an adult, does it? You know, how do you bear up under those kind of 360-degree evaluations at work, justifying yourself? How do you cope with, I suppose, the eyes of the neighbours over the fence or you know, the eyes at the school gate watching your parenting performance? Or just the pressure on yourself of of keeping that that personal ledger of achievements and works in the black. And worse still, I think that that kind of that spirit of wanting to prove ourselves, of doing things to justify ourselves, kind of creeps into how we consider the way we stand before God. You know, would would you would Christ deem your existence justified? You know, do you worry that you might just be found wanting? Do you fear that you might be you know, banished to the outer darkness of being an average Christian in life? Or, or worse, do you fear being banished altogether from the presence of God because you've been found wanting? You know, I keep meeting people, um, Christians and non-Christians alike, who, who hope they've done enough to be in heaven. Uh, it's as though, metaphorically speaking, they, they carry around a little notepad in their pockets and they're keeping a list of all the things that they've done and they hope that in the end it will balance out and they'll be okay. You know, and, and people I keep meeting who, who really want to know just from God, what are the exact things they need to do so they can keep the list and tick things off and then live the good, justified life? And I want to say, if any of this so far has rung even a little bit true for you this morning, um, you'd know that 
you know, meritocracy, the, the prospect of being rewarded for what you've done, it promises lots, but it weighs really heavily. And thankfully this morning, we get to hear from God on this. Uh, we get to look at Galatians 2. We get to see freedom uh, in the gospel. That we don't earn a thing, we can't earn a thing. Uh, as Paul writes in verse 16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that is, God overturns the whole system of meritocracy. He removes the burden from us to keep earning uh, and justifying our lives. And so I hope today that we leave, not least relieved in a couple of ways. Uh, one, that we're freer uh, in knowing that that kind of meritocracy, that earning has no place in our church. Uh, and secondly, freer in knowing that we stand justified before God because of Christ, not what we do. So, so first I want us to think about how that freedom shows it in the church. So Paul is writing against people who want to steal the gospel of freedom. They want to add legal, they want to add cultural demands and they want to leave people justifying themselves. And what shocked Paul is that the Galatians bought into it so quickly. It's why I think I can say at the start, even though you know, I expect most of us, if not all of us here are Christians, you know, I feel like I can say that the, the, the desire to do works is there. Because the Galatians, they were Christians, but they bought in so fast. You know, so how is Paul going to deal with them? You know, there are false teachers physically there. He's a long way away. He can just write letters. Well, the first thing he did in chapter 1 is he ripped into them uh, and then he defended uh, how he had the authentic gospel. But what he goes on to do in the start of chapter 2 is talk about how, um, in a past incident like this, how he and all the apostles had dealt with it before. So 14 years uh, after his conversion, in verse 1, he said he went up to Jerusalem. And he had a meeting with the, the Pillars. Um, a great nickname, that. They're not just the front row of, uh, of a rugby team. Um, they're the big apostles, Peter, James and John. And he met with them and they discovered that they actually had everything in common. They commended one another's ministry. But they came at a time where the gospel was again threatened. Uh, even in Jerusalem, verse 4 and 5, some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. But we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So just, just like that cat uh, spying on the freedom of the goldfish swimming in the bowl, wanting to pull it out, it's the false teachers who want to enslave, drag away from freedom, enslaved by by insisting that Christians had to come not just to Jesus but come and keep culture and laws of Judaism. And, and in verse 5, Paul says it's not just about culture at this point, it's the truth of the gospel, real freedom that's at stake. Yeah, and the Galatians are facing the problem that was back there in Jerusalem and Paul shows that the solution he and the apostles, when it happened before, agreed on, that the gospel actually frees from all meritocracy, all earning. It does it amongst each other, first of all. Uh, it means that in two ways, uh, we accept the outsider and we also get our reputations dismantled. That's what the gospel does. That's where merit has no place. So on the one hand, it accepts the outsider. Credentials are irrelevant. Uh, in verse 3, did you notice Titus was not compelled to be circumcised? He didn't have to join in those laws and do the extra things. Um, circumcision, if you don't know, was a, a cut in the flesh. That was a sign of entry into the people of God throughout the Old Testament before Jesus came. It was a religious credential. And Paul points out neither he nor any apostle expected Titus to get and meet these religious credentials because it's now irrelevant. 
you know, in the gospel, uncredited outsiders don't have to do a thing. They just come to Jesus and they're fully accepted. And on the other hand, those with great reputations get them dismantled because of the power of the gospel. You know, we, we probably aren't surprised in the way that Paul dismissed false teachers' reputation in verse 6. He, he goes, those who seemed important, and I think the seemed is fairly mocking, uh, you know, but they had a reputation. What's more surprising, though, is a later trip in verse 11 to 14, he talks about a time he caught up uh, with uh, Peter in Antioch on a separate occasion. So uh, the, the, the apostles, Peter, James, John, they all agreed with Paul in Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 7, they recognised Paul's ministry. They, in verse 9, they, they added nothing to what Paul was saying. They just encouraged him to keep doing Gentile ministry. And, and, but then when Paul went to visit Peter later in Antioch, verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. See, despite everything that Peter knew, he had started withdrawing from Christians who lacked credentials. And he started going back to doing things to get himself right with God. And it even meant that Paul's mate Barnabas got sucked into the same way of thinking. And Paul publicly rebukes him because in verse 14 he is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You know, this is Peter. You know, if we're thinking reputations... He's got a big reputation. This is Peter. This is the first disciple Jesus called. You know, this is Peter. This is, this is one of Jesus' three closest friends and, and arguably his best friend. This is Peter who was the first one to recognise and declare that Jesus was the Messiah. This was Peter who was the last one there following Jesus to his trial. This was Peter who was the first one to preach the Christian gospel uh, at Pentecost. Yeah, he was the big name of the early church, but the truth of the gospel dismantles his reputation. See, the, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel destroys earning things. It destroys meritocracy. You know, those without credentials and those with big names are brought on the same level by the power of the gospel. There's no one above it and you don't have to do things to get into it. A fairly high-profile sports star um, went into a busy restaurant where someone I knew was working. Uh, going up to her, she was on reception. He asked for a table uh, for him and his party. And she explained there was at least a 30 to 45 minute wait because it was busy at the time. And, and he gave her the, don't you know who I am line? And she said, yes, there's a 30 to 45 minute wait. Uh, you know, in some sense, that, that's church life. That's the power of the gospel. Reputations count for nothing. You know, those with no reputation actually count here in the gospel community in church. Um, the meritocracy has no place in the way that we relate to each other and how we treat people. Now, I know this seems really, really obvious, and yet the number of conversations I've had say to me that it's not actually that obvious, or at least it's not done. You know, I've spoken to people who don't want their profession known by others at church. Uh, for some, um, they felt their profession was too high and they didn't want people fawning to them at church. For others, they felt they were too low and be, were embarrassed by what they were actually doing. You know, a, a prison chaplain told me how... Uh, so many, con so many inmates get converted in prison uh, and they're involved in church on the inside, but when they get out, they don't feel welcome in church. You know, I know of someone who felt too famous, they're a celebrity, um, too famous to go to church. Uh, I know many who feel they couldn't come to our church because they weren't the right denominational brand. 
You know, someone else once thanked me uh, gent- for gently rebuking them because they said uh, once they'd become a Bible study leader, um, others stopped gently, lovingly rebuking them. They kind of just held them up. You know, then, of course, we, I suppose many of us fall into that trap of, trap of that, that inapproachable esteem that we hold for certain old heroes of the faith or, or international preachers that we download to iPods. You know, the reputations are, are still for some reason there, though the gospel has destroyed it all. Now, you look over Galatians 2, and, and when I look at it, I, I don't see in our church that there's really big problems that we're going back into legalism. I don't see we've got the big cultural pressure that we have to be Jewish. But I do see a warning. A warning that you know, viewing others through that grid of merit uh, happens so easily, and yet it undermines the power of the freedom of gospel. Now, you need to ask yourself, do you favour others here at church? Or have you the mind of God, which as Steve pointed out to us and the kids, and from verse 6, it doesn't judge externally? You know, even more than that, when you trust in the gospel, do you realise that you have nothing anymore to prove to anyone? Because it's not about merit. That burden is gone. Yeah, that, that's the other great bit of freedom that in the end of this chapter Paul points out, that, that we are justified, we stand right before God entirely by what God does through Christ, not our works. Verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, don't miss here, the problem's not the law. The law is actually really good. It's God's. Um, the psalmist talks about how the law is good and perfect. It revives the soul. And the, and the problem is not the works that actually come from the law. Um, you know, good laws produce good lives. You know, revived souls are a blessing to everyone they encounter. Problem's not the law, the problem's not the works that come from it. The problem is our tainted love of the law. You know, the, the problem is our attempt to earn right standing before God because of our efforts, rather than listening to, to Psalm 143's advice, a request to God, do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Now, Paul makes it really clear that everyone has a choice. You either do the faith in Christ, trust him and his work option, or you do the trust in yourself and your own works option. Either one or the other, but only one will leave you justified before God. You know, the sense in verse 16 is that a person is not justified except through faith in Christ. Only that, because by observing law, no one will get justified. You know, it doesn't matter who you are or your religious credentials. You see, Paul had plenty of religious credentials, but, but notice the way he uses the, the personal plural in verse 15. The we. You know, he was super religious and had done it all, and yet we who are Jews by nature, we chose to believe in Christ because we knew that you could never achieve what Christ's work could do. Now, don't mishear me. Um, it doesn't mean we don't do good. It's still good to do good. <laughs> still right to do good. Um, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. You know, Paul and the apostles in verse 10 saw the importance, keep remembering the poor, keep doing good. But it's the motivation that changes. The logic of verse 19 is, is that we've died to law to live for God. You know, there's been a change of lordship. We're not under law, we're under Christ. Uh, we don't do good to get status before God. We do good because we have 
status before God. As verse 20 puts it, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's, that's the freedom of the gospel is that we, we stand right before God purely because what he has done. There's still works, yes, but it's, we don't do works to get right. We do works because we're right. I reckon as I say, there are two types of reactions that generally happen uh, and you'll probably be in one of these two. Uh, for some people, if you're the kind of person who struggles with your failures and are just hyper aware of it, this news I hope for you is massive relief. You know, you can take heart from Martin Luther's experience. Martin Luther um, used to read the phrase righteousness of God and he hated it and he wrote it that he hated it because it just reminded him of his unrighteousness. He wrote, yes, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. But eventually it was kind of dawned on him, it was revealed to him that the righteousness of God also meant that in Christ he could stand right and be declared right before God. The burden was lifted, it wasn't about his effort and so he ended up saying that the righteousness of God was his sweetest word. You know, if you have spent your life trying to meet the standards of God and failed, this is wonderful news. Because uh, you weren't alone, everyone's like that. But anyone in Christ can be justified before God. But I think there's another group of people when they hear this news. A group of people who, just to be honest, have a, a little tinge of disappointment. wouldn't say it, of course. But you know, deep down, you actually like making lists and you like ticking it off. That's what the Galatians were like. That's why it was kind of appealing that these false teachers would come in amongst them and, and preach, you know, do some things. Because it's kind of nice to tick it off. Meritocracy may have treated you really well. You like a society where you've got to earn your rewards because, quite frankly, you've been rewarded because you earned it. And, yeah, you know you're not perfect, but you're not that dreadful, are you? And faith in Christ means that you actually have to take that notebook that you keep around in your pocket and toss it away. And all those lists of all the good you do just goes. A story is told of a, a judge who was surprised that one day in church uh, he happened to be alongside a man he had once sentenced. Uh, and afterwards he was chatting with his minister, the judge was, and he shared his surprise that the two of them should actually meet at the communion rail after um, years apart and their previous context. Uh, the minister started then uh, you know, give him the, the good address about how the gospel's powerful and can, can forgive all sorts of sins and, and you know, even criminals. Can be, and the judge kind of corrected what he meant. He goes, no, no, I'm not particularly surprised that he was at the rails. Um, you know, he's not a good guy. He needs grace. When he said he was surprising, he was referring to the fact that God would enable him, a man who was quite frankly good, and successful, to be humble enough to find grace. So we stand right with God only because of Christ's work and nothing of our own. Um, I was chatting to someone recently and, and he said he found it really hard to see himself as bad. Like he didn't want to say he was perfect, but, but basically he was pretty good. Um, you know, and he battles to stop thinking that God, quite frankly, God has done fairly well to get him on his team. Because um, he's a bit of an asset, quite frankly. Um, you know, in any way, if the, if the prospect of a meritocracy, of, of it being overturned, if it worries you slightly, I want to warn you that you're actually in the most dangerous place. 
because you are most susceptible to the trap that these Galatians have so quickly fallen into. Of going, yeah, I want a bit of Jesus, but I want a bit of extra myself. Just a little contribution of my own. So the, the freedom of the gospel is we don't earn a thing. We can't earn a thing. Yet we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, by faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, beware asking that question Private Ryan was doing. You know, am I a good man? Or at least if you ask it, beware why you're asking. Or to put it another way, don't keep a list. Don't keep a list of your good works. You know, that's what the bloke who came up to Jesus in Luke 18 was trying to do. Remember, he went up to Jesus and said, oh, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, oh, keep the commandments. And he said, yeah, well, I've been doing that since I was a boy. And he gets sent away ashamed. Yeah, he'd been keeping that list. It was exactly the problem Paul was battling in Galatia. People who kept records and accounts of how they were going and they'd, they'd put that on other people as well. Keep doing good, but just don't keep a record of it. Don't keep a list. Don't keep a list of your bad deeds either. Um, the freedom we've got in the gospel means that, that we stop playing merit and that whole merit game. As someone said, I made a pile of my good works and I made a heap of my bad works and I fled them both to Christ. Instead, can I encourage you to, to get rid of that metaphorical notebook you carry in your pocket and instead grab your nail. You'd forgotten you even had it. Uh, do what Luther suggested. Carry Christ's nail in your pocket. See, Luther once said that we, we all walk around with nails, the nails that crucified Christ in our pocket. And by that he meant, um, but by our sins, you know, we were the ones who effectively supplied the nails, we supplied the hammers, we, we, we put it through the flesh of Christ. It was our sins that held him there. And so carrying the nails in our pockets was a reminder of what we had done. But even more, it's a reminder of what he has done. You know, we can't keep little lists in our pockets because the, cro- the nails from the cross are there instead. Yeah? Hang on to those nails. I don't need them back. Um, I don't do that much handyman work. Put it in your pocket this week. As you fumble around for the keys, notice and remember what Christ has done for you and forget about keeping that list. can't justify our lives, but we can put our faith in Christ that we may be justified. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, him who destroys all the slavery of earning our standing before you and before others. Uh, Father, we pray that you might guard us from uh, those who want to drag us back uh, to earning our place before you or impressing others, but rather may we live delighting in freedom. And may we hang on to that cross, uh, to that nail and remember what he has done at the cross that we might be free and forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.